After a while, the sound of the king's gasping and crying lessened, and he fell silent. I lifted my face and saw through the tears in my own eyes that there were none in his. He was looking back at me with a face like an open grave. Then he smiled, and a chill like the ones I felt in Hephaestia's temple shuddered down my back. Bish bay, my bish bay, yeah, she bay, she bay, bish bay, my bish bay. Welcome back, Gods Incarnate. I'm Noelle. And I'm Caitlin. And this is the Atolian Archives, your Queen's Thief reread podcast to help you recover from Return of the Thief. It's September 11th, 2022. And today we are discussing part two, chapter eight of Return of the Thief. This is a big chapter. Yeah. This is like a big twist chapter. This is arguably the big twist chapter. Many twists that keep coming. But before we get to those, I want to talk about two things from last chapter that we didn't get to talk about because I had to run to work. There was a really good quote. Um, we've been talking this whole time about, you know, Jen going into battle versus, like, not, and why he wants to, and whether that's more or less moral, and... Uh, at the very end of last chapter, he says to just Irene, It is like being a sheepdog who suddenly turns on the sheep, he said. It feels utterly right in the moment, never afterward. That's why I wouldn't let someone else send me into battle. I never wanted to fight until I believed it was necessary. I do, he said, as if he was trying to convince himself. I do believe it is necessary. He still sounded unsure. So that is a really interesting quote. What does it mean, this analogy of being like a sheepdog who turns on the sheep? Because he's, you know, that kind of implies to me, like, you're supposed to, you're attacking the people you're supposed to be protecting, but here he's fighting enemies. Especially when we put that with the quote in today's chapter, um, where he says... I thought it was wrong to sit back on a hillside watching men die, and now I am not sure. From above, I can see men on both sides trapped in a war over which they have no control. On the field, I care about nothing but striking down anyone who strikes at me. Anatolia says, Your morality up on the hillside is an illusion, no more real than the freedom you imagine you have from it in battle. She had seen enough to know. All wars make men monsters, all wars and all men. And woman, he asked. Woman, too, Atolia confirmed. So everybody, like the common men fighting the peninsula's army may be a volunteer army. But Boosenis' army is mentioned to be an onscripts. But also, you know, regardless of whether, I guess, you sign up for the war or not, they still have no control over who they fight and why and when. Yeah. And, of course, Atolia's army of professional soldiers. Um, I mean, some of them maybe dreamed of being soldiers, and many of them, that's where they ended up. Or it was uh, economically necessary for them. Or a, a mode of economic advancement. Mm -hmm. That's something that, that, you know, that has been part of Atolia's strategy, is to economically advance the common-born professional soldiers. But that makes you 
you're you're beholden to that as your livelihood. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess Atolia's point here is there is no morality to be found in war anywhere. You are automatically a monster when you engage in killing other people. And there's no, I mean, we had talked about how it's difficult to assign a human morality to the gods as they exist in this story. They're sort of beyond it. Uh, They're just acting according to their desire, which we can't really place a, a, a moral judgment or value on. And this is kind of a similar uh, sort of thought, which really leads us into what happens to Eugenides in this chapter, which is that he becomes Eugenides. It's cool that Ferris starts calling him Eugenides. Yeah, I was... When usually he calls him the king. Yeah. How much of this is the king and how much of this is the god? And what... What can we tell from the narration? He says, uh, Eugenides is, is speaking in first person, like he knows where I like my pockets. And he knows a sign in Ferris's sign language that he shouldn't know. Yeah. But I don't know if that is divine knowledge or if it's just that Jen knows everything because he spies on everyone. Yeah, I was I was kind of thinking it's divine knowledge because... You know, Ferris says, like, oh, I didn't teach it to Relays because I would have had no reason to, but I think he wouldn't have had a reason to use the sign for Tudor in Jen's sight or whatever because he only signed to Relays pretty much. And regardless of what percentage (laughs) is mortal versus divine, uh, Ferris is terrified. He says every moment the air seemed tighter uh, he, meaning Eugenides, was terrifying, even more than he had been when he confronted the pent. He turns to Ferris and he has a face like an open grave. But then he seems very much like himself. Like he says, oh, my cousins know better than to trust my tears. Right. But then he makes it rain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He looks up at the sky and says, I need more rain. And it rains. So he's just both, I guess. Yeah. And then Edis helps us out by solidifying this in the next chapter by saying something like he can bear his god a little while without losing himself. And it's real violent. There is a sucking chest wound. The wound sucked. That's the verb. It's funny the kind of violence that you can get away with. Like the kind of description. Because, I mean, you could very easily... If you didn't have an image in your head of what a sucking chest wound looks like, uh, just, you know, the wound sucked, you might not uh, have too disturbing a picture in your head. But I certainly do. Yeah, this is what happens because you watched Hannibal, Noel. I'm sorry, <laughs> but this is your own fault. <laughs> That's what you get. And uh, we have a, a Phineas Gage of Atolia mentioned in this chapter. At the very beginning... Uh, Ferris narrates, any levity was harder and harder to find, sense was hard to find, a man was shot through the head by a bolt and lived to tell about it, and another man lost a single finger to a sword cut and died a few days later of an infection in the wound. Mm. So I kind of see, you know, like that, that assignment of random chance in battle of who lives and who dies, I feel like that's also tied to this 
lack of morality question. You know, there is no sense to it. People are dropping like flies. So many people die. Cleon. Stenides, dead. Yes. No more watches. We will not know what time it is ever again. And that was, like, the biggest blow because he's not even in the fighting. He's far away supposedly yeah. safe in Edis, but no, there was an explosion in the foundry. Like, okay, you think you, you've you left one brother safe far away, and he's at least going to be fine, but then no, so that's extra brutal. Later appears right before the bomb goes off in the cairn, which also, you know, what a deal that the bomb is hidden in a grave, and the king says, I thought I saw a dead man, and Ferris is Heart jumps into his throat, and he knew later meant the king no good. I was thinking when I reread the chapter how, you know, Ferris rode to war, making sure that he was on the list of all the king's attendants, because he knew that if anybody thought about it for even a second, he would be taken off the list and wouldn't go. And you said, like, oh, well, maybe there was also some divine intervention here, which I think makes total sense. Do you think that's maybe also part of why the Medes just let Ferris tag along. Like, they were also just, like, laughing, thinking it's a joke that he's even trying to follow. So, like, he was obviously not a threat of any kind. Yeah. And the next plot twist of the chapter, I was... Maybe this is stupid, but... <laughs> I was genuinely shocked to see Erendides there. Were you? He had to do something eventually. Yeah. Which only they makes had sense built him up too much. If you think about it, but I was not thinking about it. I guess I was thinking like, well, of course it's fine for him to fuck up internal politics, but how dare he go external and join? Like, I just thought that was like too much of a step. I was really surprised. <laughs> now you've gone too far. Yes. But I loved that the king <laughs> being deafened kind of wrecks Aaron yeah. Hades' effort. And <laughs> They're trying to give the did, villain monologue. Yeah. And it keeps going, what? What? I think he was playing that up. I know. You can you can still be petty in even the most oppressive circumstances. Can't take that away from us. And so Ion Nominus is there. The guy Boohis <laughs> I'm swinging my grogger. We don't like him. Is he there because I, I mean, I guess we don't get an answer to this. Are we supposed to assume that Sunas did, in fact, pardon him? Because he had that whole conversation with Atolia at the start of this book over, like, do I pardon him? Do I not? And we never find out what he went with. Or did he escape with Arandides' help, you know? I was having trouble remembering exactly what is the point A to point B of Ionomenus being there. Ionominus was, was in the earlier scene as kind of a, like an example of like I don't I don't want to say thought experiment, but um, Atolia is pissed because Sophos wants to release him. Nominus betrayed him. Sophos should have killed him on the spot, and he didn't have the stomach for it. He let a traitor play on his weakness, and the result of his mercy is that he is asked for even more mercy. Um, we are kings and queens, not all powerful gods. We cannot reward the good men and punish the bad ones just as we would prefer. He should leave Nominus to rot, and I told him so. For sure what the outcome of this stuff is going to be. Right. They could have killed Seginus, and 
it was good that they didn't. Yeah. Back in King of Atolia. I mean, we don't really know how much of his presence really contributed to, you know, messing up the Atolians' war effort or whatever, or was he just here and, you know, nothing really bad happened for the Atolians? But assuming that Sophos did choose to pardon him, that act of mercy and kindness is what saved Ferris's life here, because Ion Nominus saves Ferris's life, like, two or three times in this, yeah. in this chapter. Just as an act of unsolicited random kindness that was unnecessary. And then he's got his sucking chest wound and he's dying, mm. and he's like, Ugh, maybe I shouldn't have done all that. <laughs> and so, so just once I can choose a side for better reasons. The other twist of this chapter is that the continent's not coming. That was, like, the worst. That No, that was the second to worst. I believed them right away, and then I was completely taken in when Jen signed the surrender paper. I was yeah. like, oh, he means it. This is it. This is the whole thing. We're over. Like, we don't have the continent to save us. The army's exhausted. He's surrendering for real and of course he doesn't have any extra plan up his sleeve because jen's never done that but so like i'm an idiot <laughs> <laughs> oh she really got me there i was so stressed that was a very terrifying 40 seconds and it makes sense yeah. that the continent considers the peninsula and eugenides to be the real threat at this point yes he says uh Erendita says, you think the continental powers are your allies. You are wrong. They do not fear the Medes. You are the danger. You took Atolia, subdued Edis and Sunus. You summoned ships. The neutral islands deliver them up. You control the passes and the sea roads. You threaten their trade routes, Eugenides. The Medes, the continent, they cannot allow another power to grow on the shores of the Middle Sea. So this also brings up, I, I had a, a question Fordad is the one who comes back from the port at Stinos or Stinos earlier in the chapter and says, um, oh, this, the summer windstorms came early, so that's why, like, oh, the ships aren't coming. So we don't even know if the windstorms did come early. I love who's there. Atolus Eugenides, Eugenides, said the king, yes. by the will of the great goddess Anax over Hephaestia's peninsula, king of Atolia, king over Sunus and Edis, king from the Maketic Mountains to the sea, king from the Melanzetti Pass to the river Lucimina, and by my oath to my god, now and for my life, thief of Edis. That paragraph is why we need a movie yeah. adaptation! <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And they uh, torture Jen in this chapter to get him, to try and get him to sign the contract, and then it's also just out of, like, spite on Hoosier's part. We've had a lot of torture in this series. Where do you, <laughs> where do you put that with all of this? Like, does it- Like, where do I rank it on the scale? No, <laughs> just, like, does this add something? I mean, maybe this is more of a question for next chapter, because- Ferris has, in the next chapter, what I think is, like, the most defined moral statement we ever get from anybody on torture, which is that it's, it would be wrong of the king 
in Ferris's mind to use torture on somebody else since recently the means just did it to him or like maybe that's not how he puts it just that torture is wrong which before we've kind of just seen it as a tool that may or may not be effective well him getting tortured in this chapter makes me think of him getting tortured in queen of atolia yeah i i feel like we're meant to think back to that Mm -hmm. uh and i i don't really know what that connection is doing in my mind and the who's rush is kind of i don't know I mean, the who's I don't... rush was involved both times yeah and when eugenides comes back uh and he, he enters the tent and atolia is there she doesn't touch him she, she seems like she might and then she doesn't and then he walks right by her yeah it says she might have taken him in her arms but she hesitated and the opportunity passed and then uh we have much we have much to discuss, said Eugenides, and passed by her yeah. to enter the council tent. chapter eight next time it's grease lightning send us your comments questions thoughts chime in at atoliumarchives.tumblr.com be blessed in your endeavors thank you for listening this has been an amateur embroidery production find us on itunes stitcher google podcasts anywhere podcasts are available